you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Okay, welcome to episode 124, you good folks. Now, this is the first episode out since my trip to New York City. So I just want to say a couple of things real quick. Uh, first up, a big thank you to everyone who came out to the live Chat with Traders event. It was such an awesome turnout and I was really taken back by how many people actually traveled from out of state to be there. Really cool. Also, a big shout out to my guest and trader, Mike Agney, who flew in from Chicago. Um, he was just ideal. Shout out to the Sanglucci crew and the good people at Trading Technologies for sponsoring the event and, of course, helping to make this all possible. And also props to WeWork for allowing us to use their event space at their location in the financial district. Really couldn't have asked for a better venue. Now, I don't want to speak too soon, but I'm hoping, fingers crossed, we may be able to pull off an even bigger and better event in Chicago later in the year. Anyway, I'll keep you guys posted on any developments. Now, my guest on this week's episode is Max, but for those who know him already, probably know him best by his Twitter name, Madaz. I've lost count of how many times I've been asked to bring Max on the podcast. So for those who have been asking, I'm pleased to say the wait is now over. Max got into trading about six years ago after a co-worker pulled up in a brand new Lotus Elise, paid for with gains from trading BP stock. Working as an engineer at the time with average pay, it wasn't long before Max opened his first trading account and got to work. Having now developed a unique style of his own, which he describes as a scalping method, focusing on NASDAQ listed stocks, Max has become very consistent and very profitable. If you're interested, Max regularly posts PNL on his Twitter account. Just to mention a few things we discussed, how traders can benefit from being independent thinkers, the nature of scalping strategies, optimizing your workflow, mindset, and improving your psychological game, and of course, plenty more. If you enjoy this episode, please share it around. Thanks so much for being plugged in. Here is my guest, Max, for episode 124. 
So I did get a chance to check out your site, uh, your new website, which you've just put together. I was reading your story your, on the, I think it was the about section, and it sounds like you're someone who's always sort of been trying to make a quick buck here and there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Do you mind sharing some of the different things that you've, you've tried over the years? Oh, geez. Uh, I mean, I could go on forever about this. It's just, I don't know why when it comes down to it, if I make a buck, say working at McDonald's versus making a buck, you know, from the counting cards and blackjack or something, the, the one buck that I make from counting cards and blackjack just feels a lot, so much better. I think it just has to do with just rebelling against societal norms and what's conventional. I think that's all it really is. But uh, to go in detail about the things that I did, um, counting cards and blackjack was one. That was a thing that I did in college. Uh, I used to work at a movie theater, minimum wage, which at the time was $8 an hour. And uh, obviously that wasn't much. So after work, uh, I would hitch a ride to with some of my buddies and we'd head off to uh, one of the local casinos that allowed... Uh, people that were under 21 on these Indian reservations, you could be 18 and gamble and we'd go there and we'd count cards, take our entire paychecks and go and count cards. So it doesn't sound like a good idea, but I actually got pretty decent at it after a certain point. But granted, in the end, uh, it turned out to be, I think, about $5 an hour or so. But in the end, it was it was an interesting ex- experience and, and I got a kick out of it for sure. Uh, that was one thing that I did. Another thing that I did was... Um, I would like sell things on eBay that I'd find for, you know, at severe discounts. Um, I would go to stores and, and see some items that are mispriced and misappropriately priced and um, try to make a profit off of it by selling on eBay. And I also uh, would sell items that I sometimes would find people that throw out into the garbage. Uh, I actually found some pretty rare movie posters that were in mint condition uh, in the dumpster. And I actually sold them on eBay and I actually made a pretty good profit off of them. Um, those were a couple of things. Uh, I also did some other really petty things too. It sounds silly when you look at it, back at it, you know, 10, 10 years down the line. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was, that, that kind of set, I guess that was like the, the, pre, the prelude to why I started trading. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that kind of shapes the direction you head in. What sort of job did you end up getting yourself into before trading came along though? So I went to college like a lot of people and uh, I studied engineering because I was told that at the time in the United States, we were due for a lot of upgrades with respect to infrastructure. So I ended up studying civil engineering, structural engineering to be exact. And unfortunately, when I graduated, this thing called the recession hit (laughs) and I couldn't get a job or at least a good one. A lot of my colleagues from uh, from college, they ended up having to move out of state to some, you know, Midwest state or like Mississippi or something like that. And I didn't want to do that. And those are the only states that really needed the infrastructure upgrades. Uh, And I live in California and apparently engineers weren't in demand. So I was actually stuck. Uh, stocking shelves at a computer electronics store with an engineering degree for a good six months. And also I was tutoring on the side. I was tutoring guitar, piano, and math and science uh, at the same time. And it was a very humbling experience because I was here thinking I was going to graduate and I was going to get a good job and I was going to get paid you know, a good amount of money. Instead, I'm this kid making minimum wage, trying to scrape on the side with a ton of student loan debt on top of that. So it was a pretty humbling experience. 
Full on. Yeah, I guess that's probably one of the reasons that you got into trading so that you were, you know, like in charge of how much money you earned and not sort of in the hands of someone else just sort of waiting for a job. It, it, am I partially right there? Absolutely, absolutely. By the time I actually did get what you would say a quote-unquote real job, it wasn't. It was still not uh, the job that I was looking for that I had in mind. It was just a job that was fairly remedial. The pay was well below what the average engineering starting salary would start off with, with a four-year degree. And you know, I was disheartened. You know, it was it was tough. It was a shock to me because you know when your expectations aren't met. You're you're gonna face disappointment, right? So, uh, I was definitely disappointed for the first couple of years after I graduated, and I was stuck uh, at this seemingly low-paying job. And yeah, and I luckily I ran into my coworker, and that's a whole another story, uh, who introduced me to trading. And uh, I mean, that's that's pretty much how it all started. Yeah, well, let's let's hear that story because I know it is kind of interesting. So yeah, please share it with us. So my coworker, he shows up to work. I, I know that he got paid as much as I did, and I knew we weren't getting paid that much. He's been there; he was there two years, one or two years before I, I was there. So I, he probably at most had maybe a couple extra dollars an hour on, on on me, but he definitely wasn't making that much. And uh, he shows up to work with a Lotus Elise, a two thousand and nine Lotus Elise. It was a really nice car. It was yellow. It was absolutely beautiful. Pain in the ass to get in and out, but it was a very nice car. I was like, how the heck did he do that? Because I mean, we weren't making much. I mean, the, the amount of money we made, we would struggle to buy like a brand new regular car. And he shows up with this beautiful Lotus Elise. And I go up and I'm like, dude, man, how'd you get that car? Then he tells me that he, he bought BP stock when it tanked during that oil spill, you know that the new, have you have you seen the new movie Deepwater Horizon? I've been meaning to watch it. I haven't seen it yet though. Yeah, that's exactly what that that's exactly what it's about. The B, that BP oil spill, uh, and then it caused BP stock to absolutely crash. And apparently, my coworker he went all in at the bottom of that stock and he rode it all the way and he ended up supposedly making 80 grand obviously I, I didn't look at his account or anything but that's what he said and he bought this car as a result so he must have gotten the money from somewhere so um i was flabbergasted i was like you can do that kind of stuff you know like because obviously up to this point my i was an engineer i was i went to school for engineering my last experience with anything finance related was ap economics in high school so uh Hearing all hearing about all these things and and my knowledge of the stock market being fairly limited at the time, I was quite shocked. So I inquired more about it, and he convinced me to open an E Trade account. And I saved up, starved myself for several months, brought my lunch every single day, and I saved up six grand, opened up an E Trade account, and uh, that was the beginning of it. And what was the next move from there? Like, where did you go with that six thousand dollar account? So. At the time, I didn't know anything again about how the stock market worked or what was hot, what was anything that was in play. So I was completely reliant on my coworker and, and other people that he referred me to. And they were all talking about Chinese stocks. I think at the time, they were talking about stocks like Baidu, uh, Sina, uh, Dang Dang. And uh, Dang was actually the first stock I actually bought. And there's a pretty funny story behind that as well. So keep in mind, I'm a completely clueless newbie. And I had no idea how anything worked. So I started to try to buy the stock Dang. 
And I placed an order and it wasn't getting executed. And I was asking my coworker why. We, we got up at, mind you, I, I live in the Pacific time zone and I get up at 5 a.m. to, and markets opens at 6 30. So I get up at 5 a.m. to do the prep work and all that. So we're up in the morning and we're all Skyping on, uh, with each other. And I'm asking him, like, hey, why, I have my order in there. Why, why isn't it getting executed? He's like, you gotta keep refreshing the page, man. You gotta keep refreshing the page. I'm like, what page? No, I go to the, go to the E-Trade page, the dang page. So I kept refreshing and I wasn't getting executed. So later I found out that that page was on 15 minutes delayed quotes. <laughs> so he was telling me to refresh the 15 minute delayed quotes page. So that kind of tipped me off that this guy really didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> so, so I'm like, okay. Um, and I finally eventually did get executed, but it was completely in the dark. You know, I didn't know where the stock was actually priced at. I was staring at this 15 minute delayed quotes page for like two hours. I was like, Oh, now I get executed. Like, why, why is that? And I tried to ask him why. And he said, he didn't know. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so you were trying to day trade at this point with delayed quotes? No, no, no. I was just trying to, I was just trying to buy a stock. I, I was just trying to get my feet wet. Uh, I like, again, I had no idea what I was doing. And with $6,000, you can't day trade with a new trade account anyways. So I was just pretty much just trying to get my feet wet. And I was just hoping that this guy who supposedly, you know, I, I obviously saw him as somebody who was successful because I, I didn't have any other information other than the fact that he made a ton of money over a short period of time. So, you know, when you're limited on information, you don't have every, all the, you know, you don't have all the blanks filled up. You're, you're going to come to these you know, hasty, false conclusions, so to speak. You know, he made a lot of money, therefore he's good at it. So, uh, yeah, I quickly found out over the course of the next three months that he really didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know what even level one was. <laughs> so, uh, I eventually discovered it for myself. I found out how to access live quotes. I eventually found out about, you know, the E-Trade Pro, Pro platform and actual charts live live data and stuff like that. And that's when I kind of realized that trading was actually a lot more complex than what I initially thought it was. And so obviously you discovered that your buddy wasn't really, uh, how do I say this? He wasn't really more advanced than you were. He just happened to get pretty lucky on that BP trade. Where were you learning from? Like how were you trying to, once you realized that trading was a bit more advanced than what you'd initially thought, how were you learning? How were you moving forward from there? Oh, geez. Yeah. So it was just a year of just trial and error. Um, again, I was completely clueless. And this time I had nobody to guide me. You know, I, I was relying on my, my buddy to guide me. And, and you know, again, expectations not met right leading to disappointment. So I was forced to head off on my own. And naturally, what you're going to do, you're going to start Googling things like hot stocks and stock tips and stuff like that. And that led me to like various, you know, message boards and uh, for better or for worse, I, you know, indulged in those for a good six, six months, six to 12 months, actually. And uh, eventually I learned that those didn't work out too well, as uh, I found out that a lot of people that posted on there had an agenda, so to speak. <laughs> uh, so uh, after so sustaining some pretty, you know, substantial losses, I quickly realized that when it comes to trading, you can't really trust anyone. You just got to be an, a completely independent thinker. And uh, I started to look at things more objectively, uh, started looking at more objective material and, and studying things like uh, chart patterns and, and level two and things that you can't really subjectively interpret, so to speak. So I stopped looking at 
you know, reading, uh, I stopped reading news articles where, where people would obviously, like I said, have an agenda when they write said articles and I was just start to look at more objective things. And that's when I started to really get a better understanding about what trading really was. Now, these losses you mentioned, how damaging to account were they? Oh, geez. Um, well, I did get lucky myself on the first couple of trades and I quickly wiped all of those out uh, once I kind of to do things on my own. And definitely they were not only damaging to my account, but damaging to my psyche. Uh, they were, it was a, it was a huge, I would say a huge confidence hit. You know, you're going out there and, and you think you have an impression, okay, your buddy's making a lot of money. You think you're going to make a lot of money. You're successful on your first couple of trades. You're going to think that things are going to be easy. And then all of a sudden you get hit blindsided. it. And uh, you kind of realize things aren't that easy. You start you start losing money, and then it becomes a downward spiral unless you kind of realize what's going on and you save yourself and and try to you know figure out how do you can re- remedy the situation before it gets out of hand. So yeah, they were quite damaging to my account, and but then I would say the bigger damage was to my mindset really. So I was pretty much I was almost, I almost quit pretty much in the first year really if I if I think about it now. So what was it that made you not quit well um like i said i i ventured off my on my own i looked up some material that that was i kind of looked at it more objectively um and again it was just trial and error uh it's really hard to pinpoint the exact moment i get asked this a lot what was the exact moment where you just got it you know it's kind of like riding a bike right people can teach you how to ride a bike or whatever but one day you're just going to have, you're going to reach that certain threshold where you got enough practice where you just, you just get it. And then once you just get it, you never forget how to ride a bike, right? It's the same thing here. I mean, I can't pinpoint the exact moment where I got, and I certainly didn't just, you know, wake up one day and magically acquire all of the skills to become a successful trader by any means. It was definitely a lot of dedication, a lot of hard work, but it was more of a cumulative process. And, and one day, uh, everything just clicked, you know, it was just, it was just a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of staring at charts, a lot of staring at level two and, and it's pattern recognition. So once I recognize patterns and put two and two together, and that was about maybe about the one, one year point of you, if I can kind of just give you a range of when I started to get it, um, about the one year mark was when I actually recognized various patterns that kind of allowed me to have some degree of success to get me, get me going at least. Okay. Now just backpedaling a little bit, it sounds as though you went straight into live trading, like straight out of the gate. Did you ever consider paper trading? You know, in, in hindsight, I definitely should have. And anyone that asks me t- today, um, if I'm looking, if you're looking to start off trading, what should you do? You should definitely paper trade, hands down, 100%. And the reason why I didn't do it was because I just had, you know, the go-getter mindset, and I just wanted to jump in, and I just wanted to start making money. And obviously, that's not the right way to approach it. But you know, with the benefit of hindsight, it's easy to see. But when, when you're kind of like a money-hungry kid who's still in his twenties, who's been, you know, I guess so to speak, deprived of of having a, a good career to start off with, with 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 supposedly what was expected to be a decent degree, a decent field to enter in in, in engineering, uh, I felt like I needed to make up for lost time, so to speak. So I decided to just jump in to the deep end of the pool, for better or for worse. So yeah, kind of impatient in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. 
So obviously paper trading is something you would have done differently Would you? Uh, should you have your time again. What other mistakes did you make? Like were there any other great mistakes you made in those first couple of years which you think might be beneficial for others to hear about? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely used too much capital, uh, too much, a very large percentage of my capital when I was playing. Basically, I was kind of going all in on a lot of the trades, which is highly not recommended. Um, you know, because when you're new, you don't understand risk management and you don't understand, you know, when is the right time to take profits, when's the right time to stop out and cut losses. So definitely, if you're a new trader, play small and give yourself a chance to learn because the moment you run out of money, you lose the ability to learn. And if you lose your money before you, you acquire all the skills to become successful at trading, well, I mean, that's pretty much the end of the end of the road for you. So, uh, I was lucky enough to kind of catch myself doing that. And I stopped doing that before I lost all my money, fortunately, but I've, I'm sure it happens to a lot of people. And, you know, for the people that, are still in the process of deciding what you should do. Definitely play small. Another mistake that I did was I obviously uh, was too, I guess I was too impatient with a lot of things. Um, like I said, jumping off in the deep end of the pool. I also would believe a lot of the things I would read, uh, a lot of the subjective things that I mentioned earlier on the message boards and things like that. And I think, you know, I think that's true for a lot of new traders. Like I said, when you're new and you're, com you're a complete, you're like a blank canvas, right? You don't know what's going on. You're going to read something and it's going to influence the way you think. So that led me to hold a lot of stocks a lot longer than I should have. So, you know, the popular term bag holding. Yeah, I was, at, I was definitely a, a, a big time bag holder in my first year. I'm not too uh, shy to admit it, but um, definitely you got to be an independent thinker in this game. That's all it really is. I, I would definitely say think for yourself, uh, manage risk. Uh, don't overextend yourself by going in too big too early and uh, definitely paper trade. Okay. Well, Max, let me ask you this question. So when you first came into trading, what things did you believe to be true about trading, which you now realize are not true? Oh, that trading was a lot easier than it really is. I mean, that's probably the biggest thing. I mean, when, when I first heard of that statistic, you know, I'm sure this gets thrown around a lot. 90% or 95% of traders fail. When I first heard that, I thought it was just a straight up lie. I, I didn't believe it. Because if you look at all of the things in the world, even the most difficult things, I'm just thinking of, say, for example, like brain surgery or something like that. I mean, you know, brain surgery is a very complicated task, but, you know, 90% of brain, sur brain surgery does not, doesn't result in failure. So I'm thinking here, like day trading is that much more difficult than trying to do brain surgery, you know? So I've, I haven't actually done brain surgery, but I've done pretty hard things. You know, I've, I've, uh, you know, I studied engineering. That was a very difficult field and there were some very tough exams that I, I took. And, and here I'm, I'm entering a thing where I'm led to believe, obviously, when my buddy telling me that he made a lot of money, I, I had the impression that it was going to be easy. And now I'm hearing that 90%, 95% of people fail at it. I'm like flabbergasted. I just didn't believe it. So that was a big myth. And once I actually got into it and I kind of realized uh, there was a heavy, heavy psychological aspect of it, 
now I kind of got a better understanding of why 90 to 95% of traders fail. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Well, let's talk more about how you actually became full-time as a trader. So, tell us about the point that you went full-time trading. Like, What did it take for you to be able to make that, that leap, if you will? So, yeah, so I can only speak for myself, of course. This is going to differ for everyone. Everyone asks me this question, like, you know, what, how did you, what made you decide to, you know, to move into full-time training? Why, why were you comfortable in doing that? So for me personally, I worked uh, on my job, uh, my engineering job for three years. And uh, funny story there too, I, I sneaked trades on the job. I hope my boss isn't listening, ex-boss. <laughs> um, but I, I often sneak trades on the job, um, and uh, I did that concurrently while working. And you know, so I was basically trying to gain experience in trading, and and obviously I didn't want to completely cut off uh, my engineering job in case trading didn't work out. I would just quit trading and just live life the conventional way and, and just become an engineer. And I was content with that. And, and, and trading was just a thing where if it worked out great, if it didn't, then that's fine. I, I tried, you know, and I don't regret trying. So after three years, I saved up enough money uh, from my salary. I saved up about five times my salary on top of the fact that I waited for two consecutive years of six figure gains in just trading. So that was pretty much my, I guess my uh, metric in, in measuring what defined as was, what was defined as comfortable for me to quit. So two years of six figure uh, profits from trading and collectively five years of my uh, salary saved up. So that's what I did. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. So you had 
collectively from trading profits and your savings from your your job, you had about five years worth of absolutely what you were earning. Okay, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, to make six figures two years in a row as a trader, just a couple years into this, that's very impressive. I mean, how were you able to do that? <laughs> I know that's a very open ended and broad question, but like that's very unheard of. Yeah. So there are obviously a lot of factors. I mean, I put a lot of time and effort into it. Don't, I definitely don't estimate, underestimate that aspect of it. I, I woke up at 5 a.m., I would study after hours for three, four hours. And this is on top of having a nine to five. So I would wake up at five, um, trade from 6.30 to 8.30, go to work, and then come back to work. It's like 6 p.m. and I'm, I'm still going to be studying material until basically the time I go to sleep. So I definitely put in my, I paid my dues for sure. I was also probably very fortunate to be in a time where the market was, I would say, fairly easy. I, I would say relative to now, I, the market conditions were a lot easier, especially it was more friendly to the new trader. Um, back then, the hot thing was penny stocks, OTC, bulletin board stocks. And it was a lot easier to pick up the patterns um, that were prevalent in the OTC markets as opposed to now that we're trading these small cap on uh, NASDAQ listed stocks. So I was, I guess I was fortunate enough to kind of enter in during a time when it was just the learning curve was just a lot easier, so to speak. So, uh, I picked up on the patterns pretty quick. There wasn't as many patterns to learn. And, uh, thankfully just a combination of hard work and just the right timing, uh, led to early success, I, I suppose. Okay. And would you say that it, sort of a large majority of those profits came from a few really good trades or did you just hit a lot of nice singles? So there were a lot of big trades uh, for sure. I would say just the nature of the way the OTC markets operated, there would be one or two hot stocks on average uh, a month or so. And they would kind of drag on for that month or sometimes even more than that. So we would pretty much trade the same stock every day for a month, two months even. So again, this goes on with the, goes along with the pattern of things were pretty much repetitive and, and they're very easy to, easy to recognize. So definitely a lot of the trade, a lot of the profits did come from a few trades. But at the same time, this allowed me to kind of slow things down. It wasn't as fast paced as it was now. So it allowed me to pick up things a lot fa a lot quicker due to the slower pace of the way the market operated, given that you can just wait uh, for that one good trade to pop up as opposed to now where you're, you know, you're always on your feet a lot more often in the more active market with these listed securities. But with OTCs, you would wait. Maybe sometimes you would wait more than a day and then you would get the big trade, jump in, make your money and then just sit there and wait for the next big trade. So it just really depends on, on how often they would occur. But it wasn't really something that was required you to be on your feet at all times, so to speak. And five years salary, I'm not sure how much that is. Do you mind sharing? Yeah, um, I was making about $50,000 uh, as an engineer, definitely well below average. So I saved up about 300000 You had about $300,000. Okay, so you had about three hundred k when you quit your job. I mean, that seems like 
quite a big safety blanket, you know. Um, not much can go wrong there. <laughs> well, I should be careful saying that, but yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> it could go very wrong very quickly, actually. But you know, you did have a very big safety blanket there. Was that 300k? Was that a figure you had? in mind that I have to reach this before I quit my job or did you, was it more I want to be, I want to have a couple years of consistency before I go into full-time trading? Like why did you not quit your job sooner? I guess is the question I'm trying to ask here. So it was a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. So I didn't come up with that 300K number predetermined fashion. Um, I just definitely had that two years of consistent profits over six figures in my mind though. I did have that for sure. And it just so happened to work out that at the end of the two years of consistent six figure income that it happened to be around 300 K. And that's when I kind of took a step back and I kind of, um, calculated my finances and made sure that it was a wise decision to move on. And, you know, in the, in the worst case scenario, in case it doesn't work out, I still have five years of salary to live off of. And, you know, a good amount of time to look for another job. So uh, it just happened to work out that way, but I didn't have that 300K number predetermined. Okay. And how long have you been trading for now? I know you said you started in your like early 20s. How long have you been trading for now? Uh, as, as of last month, six years. Six years. Okay. So let's talk some specifics about how you're trading. What sort of trader are you and what sort of trading opportunities are you trying to catch? i mainly trade small cap listed NASDAQ stocks and uh, I mainly scalp them. And I know there are a lot of people that are going to, you know, debate this with me about scalping, but in the end, who cares, right? No, no matter how your approach is, what your approach is, if you make the money, you make the money. So scalping is something that I've uh, adopted uh, just due to the nature of my personality. And I kind of came to the conclusion that I'm better off finding a trading style that suits my personality as opposed to you know, it's changing my personality, changing who I am to suit that style. So I'm naturally a pretty impatient person. I was always that kid that wanted to open that present early on Christmas. Uh, and I was also a very, a very anxious person naturally. Um, I'm, I was always the kind of person that would, if I was stuck waiting for something for an extended period of time, I would start getting really nervous and I would start getting really anxious. So that kind of made it difficult for me to have to hold the stock for even a couple minutes. I mean, a couple minutes being like 10, 15 minutes. I mean, I could still do that at times, but I would prefer, much prefer not to just because of the way I am. So a lot of people would ask me, you know, why, why I do this scalping method. And so it just really has to do with understanding what kind of person I am and my characteristics, my qualities, my personality, and finding the right trading strategy that suits it. And that's really all it is. So when you describe your strategy as more of a scalping strategy, do you mind just really dumbing that down and explain to us what that means? Like what's your interpretation of scalping? So scalping basically just means that I get in and out of stocks very, very quickly. Uh, micro moves, uh, long-term patterns, I wouldn't say they're completely irrelevant, but I would say that they don't have as much of an impact on these trades that I take. Also, things like fundamental analysis, I wouldn't say I would throw them out the window. It's still good to know the information, but they don't influence these trades as much as, say, somebody who tries to swing trade for a longer duration of time. So given my impatient and, and anxious nature, I don't want 
to be in. I don't want to have my trade impacted by these other factors. So I try to minimize the effects of them by, you know, limiting the duration of my trades down to sometimes a matter of seconds. Okay, seconds. So I mean, is that what would you say is an average? You said sometimes it can be seconds, but as an average, how long do you are you typically holding a position for? Uh, maybe about two to three minutes on average, I would say. Two to three minutes. Okay. And what sort of price move are you trying to take out uh, during that time as well? Like, so we sort of spoke, how long are you holding these positions for? How much sort of, what sort of price moves, what sort of range are you trying to get out of each trade? So it varies. It depends on the stock. Uh, if a stock is a higher price stock at obviously in a, in a lower float, a lower, a smaller share structure, then it might be a larger move, maybe it could be $1, $2, $3, but for the lower price stocks that are below $10, $10, maybe 30, 40, 50 cents on average, but it varies. And on a normal day, how often would you, how frequently would you be trading? Like how many trades do you take in a given day as a scalper? So in terms of round trips, I would probably say on average, maybe on an average day, I would say maybe like 20. 20 round trips? Yeah, 20 round trips. Okay. And as a scalper, do you ever get frustrated when you see a trade that you got into and got out of continue to move in the direction you were trading? Like as a scalper, I guess you you sort of take the risk that you're going to miss uh, some large moves because you're in and out so quickly. Um, is that ever the case? How do you deal with that sort of thing? That was definitely something that I kind of dealt with uh, early on in my trading career, especially the part when I started to develop the scalping style and and integrate it as the main part of my repertoire. Uh, but it, I just kind of got over it. It's just the nature of the strategy. It's a trade-off. You know, I, I'm trading off basically getting in and out quick, uh, quick, mitigating the effects of these random market events such as news or uh some random thing that causes the stock to adversely go against me in exchange for potentially missing out. And and again, with the way trading works, it doesn't really matter because if the stock keeps going up, I can always get back in anyways. So if I take a step back and kind of look at it, I think it's a fair trade off. And, you know, given the fact that I can always get back in and just keep scalping the same stock and still make money off, it's not really that big of a deal. So is that something you do quite frequently is sort of scalp in and out of these larger moves if they occur? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if a stock is going in a continuous uptrend and I'm in and I, I, I sell uh, on a quick move and the stock keeps going up, then I would just wait for the next the next dip, the next pullback or the next washout and I would just get in and buy that and then repeat and rinse until the trend breaks. That's really all it really is. Would you consider scalping to be somewhat of, I guess, more of an advanced strategy? Like, is it something you would suggest newer traders uh, even consider or they at least need a bit of market experience before sort of trying to get into this sort of thing? Well, one of the key things about scalping is you got to be really quick. Um, I think a lot of people give a negative connotation to scalping is because they don't really understand uh, how it works and why why I do it. So with scalping, you actually have to be very quick and you have to have the ability to make very, very quick decisions. So sometimes you get into a trade and it might go against you right away and you have to recognize within 
a second that you got to get out to, you know, salvage the situation. So you got to be able to make decisions very, very quickly. So not only do you have to be quick with your keyboard and your mouse, but you have to be very quick witted and make these decisions very, very quickly. And I believe this is where, again, the whole 90, 90, 95% of traders fail kind of thing kind of comes in because even if you understand the decisions that need to be made, when you're kind of in the hot seat, so to speak, it's actually very difficult under pressure to make these kind of decisions very, very quickly. And scalping really, really amplifies uh, the effects of these decisions that you make in a very, very small time frame. So let's not gloss over this. Let's speak about this a little further. Um, you know, you do need to be very quick as a scalper. What, what, what are some of the things you do to optimize your speed of execution? Like, do you have, uh, you kind of hinted there, you've got hotkeys set up. Um, do you have your screen set up in a different in a certain way like your platform and that sort of thing what are some of the things you do to optimize your execution and your decision making ability so hotkeys is a very huge component of it uh, anyone that hasn't set up their hotkeys hotkeys to trade they're definitely at a severe disadvantage it's almost like bringing a knife to a gunfight uh by not having hotkeys, even if you're not a scalper, by the way, even if you're not a scalper, if you're in a situation where you have to get out of a stock really quick, you have to exit a position really quick, the hotkey could be the difference between, you know, a small loss and a major loss. So hotkeys is a huge component of it. And I would say the way I set up my platform, I have all of my charts and all my level twos very organized. And I also have basically my orders kind of pre-entered in, not sent out to the market, but pre-entered in given, uh, I also do some pretty thorough technical analysis. So I have a pretty good idea of where these stocks are going to dip to, uh, where they're going to pull back, where they're going to, you know, bounce off of. So I kind of have a pretty good idea of where they're going to go. And I'm going to enter those prices in my platform already. So by the time the stock hits those targets, it's just a matter of clicking a button. So it's like one second. So what are some of the actions that you have set up as hotkeys? Changing my routes, uh, hitting the offer if I have to. I have basically have hotkeys for entering a position where I add liquidity and take liquidity. I have a hotkey where I uh, two hotkeys where I exit uh, exit a position where for where I take liquidity and add liquidity. So one for enter and one for exit. So it's a pair for each. Um, share size, you know, changing your share share size on the fly. Uh, sell half, sell one fourth. You know, things like that, uh, that really helps add to just making quick decisions and just being really, really fast when entering orders. When you're scalping, are there certain order types that are preferable for you to use? I always have been a fan of only the limit order because when I, people always ask me this as well. If you try to use a market order, I always thought that it's kind of a blank check to the market maker. They can pretty much execute your order technically wherever they want. And I don't want to be put in that situation where I get a poor execution, especially on a stock that is very volatile. You might get a really bad execution. So I always use a limit order to have that control, knowing where I will at worst get executed uh, with my order. So always limit orders. I've always used them. Um, I stopped using market orders after a really, really bad mishap after the first year or so ever since then it's always been limit orders for me do you mind sharing that that mishap <laughs> so it was actually on a penny stock that was uh relentlessly dropping like a rock um i made the mistake of panicking 
using a market order, thinking that I would get executed right away because I've heard people say, hey, market orders, you know, you use them, you can get out right away, you know. Uh, they also have priority over limit orders. Okay, fine, let's try it. I, I tried it. Basically, when on the way OTC bulletin board stocks work is that they tend to fill your orders very, very late. Sometimes the stock can drop even dollars and your order might not get executed just the way it's just the nature of the way OTC stocks work. So I hit a market order and like I said, it's a blank check to the market makers. I mean, when the market makers see a market, uh, when the market makers see a market order sent to the market, I would imagine that their eyes are probably lighting up and they're like, okay, let's fill this guy at the worst possible price. Cause that's pretty much what happened to me. I hit market order thinking that I'd get out relatively unscathed and I end up getting sold at the very bottom. So I took a pretty substantial hit. Does that mean market orders are treated differently on NASDAQ stocks? Well, I think most of the time you'll on NASDAQ stocks, you'll get executed where you expect to ex- get executed with the market order. But even if there's a 1% chance that I might get a poor execution, again, particularly on stocks that are moving very, very quickly, very volatile stocks, especially the stocks with very small, a very small share structure that can pretty much skip dollars. Uh, I don't want to be put in that situation where, you know, I'm expecting to stop out, say for like a small loss and end up, end up stopping out, getting stopped out for a major loss. So I, I want to protect myself by having a higher degree of control by using a limit order. Now, I think one of the things we haven't really covered uh, up to this point is how you actually identify which stocks you're going to participate in and try to scalp. So do you mind shining a little light on that and telling us a bit about how you actually identify uh, these trading opportunities and these stocks? Again, I wake up in the morning. Uh, this time I wake up around 6 a.m. now before I used to wake up at 5 a.m. But now with more experience, I can wake up a little bit later and still accomplish the same thing. But I wake up around 6 a.m. and I, I look at my scanner. I look at the stocks that were in play from the day before to see if there's any continuation. And uh, I pretty much scan, sto- scan the type of stocks that I like to play, which are typically uh, lower float small cap stocks. And uh, I'd sort them by large gap percentage change from the close, large percentage change from the close. And I also note the float, like what size of the float uh, the stock is. And I also look at other things too, like uh, percentage owned by institutions, um, because that also impacts the way the stock trades. But usually I just pick the stocks that have the biggest overnight move or the biggest intraday move. And I just look for volume. If there's, if it has all these components and it has the volume and it has the price action, you'll probably better believe I'm going to be there. Are you able to take that one step further and share maybe a stock that was on your radar today and sort of give us the reasons why? Yeah. So today the hot stock, the flavor du jour was I and uh, IMGN, I believe the ticker symbol. And, uh, let me make sure that was the right symbol. Yeah. IMNP, sorry. IMNP was the ticker symbol today. And the reason why I ended up trading that was because it was the top gapper of the day. It, uh, had a relatively small float. Uh, it had very large volume at the open. It pretty much had all of the ingredients for a stock that I would like to trade. You know, I want, I like to trade stocks with volatility, stocks with liquidity, um, 
stocks that just offer an opportunity to make a decent amount of money in a very short period of time. Again, going back to my scalping style, and that's why it all fits, fits together. Now, one of the things I noticed, I think I was watching one of your YouTube videos when we were doing a little bit of research uh, for this for this interview. You use three-minute bars, right? That seems a little unconventional. Um, tell us a bit about the idea behind that. So when I first started, I used one minute. And uh, I was you know, led to believe that one minute made the most sense because, you know, I'm scalping micro moves. Having a one minute candle gives me the information that I need to make these kind of micro trades. I eventually found out that one minute charts are very, very choppy. They give a lot of false signals because it's a lot of, it's a lot of data. It's a lot of information. You know, when you have all of these candles kind of going back and forth, you kind of have a much more difficult time seeing any clear trends or patterns with so much data going on. So I switched to a five minute chart, which was something that was fairly popular as well. And I was uh, trying that for a little bit. And I quickly realized that that was too little information Uh, that would just give me too general of a picture. And for the purpose of scalping, if I'm in and out of trades, two to three minutes, five minutes was just simply too long of a duration for me and I just didn't have enough information to make good decisions. So I first uh, switched to another platform called Thinkorswim, which I still use to this day. Um, They had three minutes as one of the default uh, time intervals. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Let's check this out. So I started using three minutes and it kind of stuck because it was pretty much the perfect compromise. I mean, (laughs) perfect compromise mathematically as well as just for the purpose of trading, because it gives the right amount of data, it gives the right amount of information. It's not too choppy like the one minute chart where it gives false signals. It gives me a good picture without being too gen- without being too general with a five minute chart, and it just works out perfectly for me. Okay, Max, I'd like to ask you a bit about reading the tape. I posted on Twitter a little earlier um, to say that I was going to be having you on the podcast. And if anyone had any questions for you, and I don't normally do that, but the reason I put that out there was because I've had a lot of requests to bring you on the podcast, so it kind of made sense. Um, I presume that there would be people who had questions for you. One of the things that came up a couple times was to try and get some insight out of you on reading the tape. So tell us a little bit about how the tape plays into how you trade. The tape is probably the main thing uh, that I use to make my trades. It's probably the most important component. And unfortunately, it's a pretty difficult concept to explain to, especially to a person who is fairly new at trading, because the tape is basically, you know, it's, it's just the level two is just buyers and sellers, right? And the time in sales is just the orders going through. And then the gra- the chart itself is just a graphic graphical representation of the time in sales. So the tape, there's lots of stuff going on. There's lots of manipulation. There's lots of algos fighting each other. So it's really difficult to generalize tape reading in even, you know, a a couple of words or a couple of sentences or, you know, it's very difficult to explain it because there's just so much stuff going on. There's so many different patterns. There's so many different algos out there. So when I come and approach a stock, I try to pick up really quick the patterns that the algos are using on that particular stock. 
you know, I try to pick up, okay, are they trying to support the bid? Are they trying to sell shares on the ass with an iceberg order relentlessly? When are they going to stop selling? Are they going to stop selling? You know, is somebody buying an infinite amount of shares with an iceberg order? You know, I use terms like bid prop and, you know, refreshing seller to kind of describe these kind of things. But the problem with that is it differs from stock to stock. So what may be true for stock XYZ might not be true for stock ABC. So when somebody asks me, like, how do you get good at tape reading? It's really difficult because it's different every single time. Um, so my best advice to these people would be to record your trading days as many as possible and record your level two and your time of sales and the chart too. And then once the training day is done, go back, watch it in slow motion, watch it in half speed, one fourth speed, however slow you need to kind of pick up these little things that the algos are trying to try to toy around with on the level two. Like I said, you know, there might be a, a hidden order, a hidden buyer, a hidden seller, an iceberg order, something like that. You got to be able to pick up on these things. And again, it's not the same on every stock. So you got to pretty much do this every single day until you kind of develop a sixth sense or an intuition to be able to pick up these things and be able to adapt no matter what stock is in play. You kind of know the tricks and when they come up, then you kind of recognize it right away. So that's probably the best way I can put it. Yeah. And that's one of the things I was going to ask you about. I was going to ask you like, is tape reading something which can be taught or is it really something you have to learn through, you know, hours upon hours of screen time and just observing sort of the market behavior and, and that type of thing. So I think you've made it pretty clear there. Also, I think a good question to ask you around this, what advantage do you get from tape reading that you couldn't get from your three minute bar charts? Oh, that's a very, very good question. So I would say, again, the chart is just a graphical representation of the time in sales. And another term for level two is market depth. And the key word here is depth. So what does depth mean? That means that you can see beyond the first buyer and the first seller, right? If you're looking at level one, you got the best bid and the best offer. But then when you have level two, now you have market depth, which means you see all of the buyers below the best bid, uh, the best bid, and below uh, all of the sellers be um, below the best offer. So you get to you get the advantage of seeing beyond what the chart can tell you. The chart doesn't tell you how many buyers and how many sellers there are. There, it doesn't show you imbalance, right? It doesn't show you an imbalance of buyers or imbalance of sellers. You can't tell. With the level two, you actually can kind of see that. But then again, when it comes to tape reading, you got to be able to recognize things like hidden buyers and hidden sellers because people can do things like hide size on the level two and try to deceive you that way as well. So it's not exactly black and white either. But then again, like I said, it's better than nothing. So with the level two, with the market depth and the depth part of it, you kind of get to see, I guess, so to speak, what's below the surface or what's behind the scenes as opposed to seeing just only what's on what's on the front. Yeah, no, I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, so we've kind of established here that you use bar charts, you use or candlestick charts, whatever, three minutes, you use the tape. And I noticed that the only indicator you use is VWAP. How do you use VWAP and why is that your only indicator? So VWAP was something that is a fairly recently 
popular uh, indicator that kind of came into the market, I would say maybe a couple years ago. It gained prominence. It was, I'm sure it's been around for a while, but it got really popular amongst the trading community about you know 2013, 2014, around that time. And you know, as a result, I kind of noticed that a lot of the algorithms started to base their trades off of VWAP. Of course, that's not always the case, but you know, trading is a game of probability, so you gotta go off of what's what what the odds are. So I noticed that a lot of the algos started making trades off of VWAP, and they would tend to use it as an over under. So what I mean by over under is if the stock is above VWAP, it tends to be bullish. If the stock is below VWAP, it tends to be bearish. So I basically just use VWAP as just a, a kind of an indicator to know whether to be long biased to stock or to be short biased to stock. So I wouldn't be shorting stocks that are above VWAP. I would only be longing them. I wouldn't be longing stocks below VWAP. I would only be shorting them and so, you know things like that. Now, the reason why I only use VWAP as my only indicator is because if you kind of understand what indicators are, I'm talking about things like simple moving average, things like you know SMA, EMA, uh, MACD, things of that nature. Uh, they tend to be what we call lagging indicators. And lagging indicators, it's in the term, right? It just means that it gives you a delayed, uh, a delayed signal. So by the time you get the confirmation signal from these indicators. You know, be it like a golden cross or whatever, the move has already been made. You know, the true traders can actually anticipate these moves before they happen, and that's where the profits really come in. So, if you're reliant on these ind indicators, you know, such as the simple moving average and things like that, you're kind of behind in terms of you know all these other guys that are being you to the chase using you know their abilities to anticipate moves before they happen. You're going to be pretty much chasing their stock. You're going to be prop, you know, pumping their stock even higher so they can sell at a higher price. So that's why I stopped using them. I did use uh, SMA for a while. I used uh, RSI for a while and I used MACD for a while. They didn't, they didn't really help me. So I just kind of use uh, VWAP and I don't use VWAP as a, a signal to get me in and out of a stock. I just use it as a, an over under, a gener general over under uh, to determine, to distinguish between bullish and bearish. And that's all I really use it for. When you use VWAP, do you factor in the slope of VWAP or anything like that? Or is it plain and simply just is price above or below? Well, there are other things too. For example, if a stock has a, if it's, if it's considerably above VWAP, then you can kind of draw a conclusion that the longs really have control. The bulls really have control of this stock and that the shorts are in deep, deep, deep water. So if you can kind of measure the distance between the price of the stock and the VWAP, and that kind of tells you uh, how much of a discrepancy you have in terms of buyers versus sellers. If the stock, for example, is well below the VWAP, the price is well below the VWAP, then you can kind of say that the bears have firmly in control of the stock. Now, if you see a stock trading kind of at the VWAP, then it's kind of more neutral. And uh, I guess you can say that you know, it's a no man's land, so to speak. Nobody has control. If the stock is only barely above it, then maybe the longs don't have as much control. Things of that nature. So I, I would take into consideration the distance of the price of the stock to the VWAP. Excellent, man. Very good. Let's change gears a little bit. Let's talk about psychology. And then I think that'll probably take us out. 
I know psychology and mindset is a really big part of how you trade. Um, you know, you said to me prior to I hit the record button here that you think trading is about 80% psychology, 20% about sort of, I guess, technical skills. How come that's your belief? Why do you think this way? I believe this way because, again, it comes back to the whole 95% of traders uh, failing. If trading was as simple as just memorizing chart patterns, memorizing terminology, even reading charts and reading the tape, you know, it was just solely dependent on those kind of skills and just memorization and regurgitation and things like that, then I think it would be a fair assumption that more than more than five to 10% of traders would actually succeed at this. And again, that's a very loose statement. When they say, when somebody says 90% of traders fail, that doesn't necessarily mean that 10, the 10% of traders are actually making enough money to make a living out of it. It might be that, you know, if you're in the top 10 percentile, barely, you might be barely breaking even. You might just not be losing. So that number actually might be even higher. It might be even be like the top 1%, who knows? But going back to the point, yeah, if it was really that simple, then more traders would actually succeed at it. It was just simply memorizing, like, you know, memorizing the Pythagorean theorem for your math exam, right? Anyone can do that. And then you could just implement it and you're good. Here, you can implement all these things that you read. And if you can't have the right mindset, you can't make these decisions in a high pressure situation, it all goes to waste. You can't really do it. You know, it's like that professional basketball player, for example, or the professional soccer player. You know, they probably practice penalty kicks all day in practice for years. So why do even the best of players end up missing in a very high pressure situation? It's not because they can't do it. They've done it millions of times. But it's because there's a psychological aspect of it, which would call, I guess, the intangibles, right? So in trading, it's no different. You have to be able to be mentally conditioned. You have to be very, very, very mentally stable. You have to be very confident. You have to be able to make these decisions. And you kind of have to have that feeling of being able to make these decisions without kind of, you know, reconsidering yourself, re doubting yourself, having that feeling of regret. These things can't play in your head when you're making these decisions or else it's just going to cause you to have a downward spiral and eventually possibly even have a mental breakdown. Who knows? So that's one major reason why I would say 80% of it, if not more, is uh, psychological. So with that being said, is there anything you do to try and improve your, your game in the psychological area? I mean, I know that question wasn't worded very well, but is there anything you sort of try to focus on that's going to help you psychologically in your own trading? So on top of obviously developing and being competent with the skill itself. Obviously, you know, you can have all the confidence in the world, but if you don't know how to do brain surgery, it doesn't matter how confident you are, how much you believe in yourself, you're not going to be able to do it, right? If you don't have the skills. So you have to be very competent in the, the skill set that you need to be successful at trading. Obviously, if you're a scalper, you have to have, you have to be quick. You got to have all the hotkeys. You have to have know all these things, of course. So first of all, first of all obviously, you got to know your stuff. But in terms of mental conditioning, this goes beyond trading. 
And uh, some people have probably read my blog post about this where I explain that a lot of mental conditioning takes place outside of trading. So I do a lot of things like meditate. I go out and I enjoy my life. I get my mind off of trading. I'm not I'm not thinking about trading 24 seven. You know, I'm not polluting my mind with these these thoughts that would be detrimental to my to my mentality. So I go out there, I, I live my life like normal, I, I enjoy it. And I, I firmly believe that if you are a person who enjoys your life, and you're a person who's genuinely happy, and you go out there, you're gonna, it's gonna carry over into trading, you know, you're gonna have that, that clear mind to be able to make these decisions if you don't have all these other things going on. You know, f- for example, a professional athlete will undoubtedly be able to perform very well night in and night out if he's a very talented athlete, but if he has things and issues that are going on on, I mean, off the court or off the field or whatever, that's going to probably affect, you know, his or her performance when it comes to the big game. So the same thing here, if you're a person who struggles to do things that keeps their mindset stable in a day on a day-to-day basis. If you're a person that struggles with things like say addiction, or you're a person that gets angry very easily. Are you a person who um, just has issues just controlling little things here and there? Are you, are you, you, is thing, these things will carry over into trading. You know, if you're, if you got, if you're a person who just, can't control yourself, can't really control yourself from doing certain things. Like I said, having that addictive personality, that's going to cause you to become a trader who just starts over trading, starts getting greedy. And it's obviously going to result in your downfall. So I think the psychological aspect of trading, again, 80% of it comes from within. It comes from internally. It comes from who you are as a person outside of trading and whatever person you are outside of trading will carry over into your trading performance. And it's going to probably, I'm pretty sure will impact your trading results. What you're saying here kind of reminds me of that saying, how you do one thing is how you do everything. And I really believe that's, that's very true. If we just bring this back to trading uh, in particular during the trading session, how do you sort of control your psychology as much as possible and your, your mindset during the day. Like I presume, you know, let's say you've just lost money on the last few trades. Is there anything you do to try and keep, stay focused and keep your head right? There's a little running gag that I, you know, post on Twitter pretty often. And it's a hashtag called trader nap and it's a, it's a joke. I mean, it's, it's, it's in good fun, but there's actually a pretty good reason why I actually do that. So there's undoubtedly periods of time during the market where it's a lot easier to make money and there's going to be times where it's a lot more difficult to make money. I found out personally for me that at the open is where I make most of my money. And progressively throughout the day, especially during the lunch hours where New York goes to lunch, which is basically uh, 12, uh, 12 noon Eastern time, around those hours, that's when the volume kind of dries out. The volume diminishes and the price action also uh, kind of diminishes as well. So I kind of identified during those periods of time, it's in my best interest to just walk away, not trade. And, uh, and I say, I'm, I'm just going to go take my trader nap. I'm just going to go knock out of my bed behind me. You know, 
it's actually something that I really highly recommend people do walk away when the edge is no longer there. You know, why, why trade during a period of time where you're probably going to end up losing, you know, it's going to cause you unnecessary amount of stress uh, on top of obviously hurting your trading account. Uh, you know, so there's really no reason for you to do that. And a lot of people obviously will have that urge, right? And going back to that addictive personality, if you kind of have that tendency, you're going to have that urge to want to keep going. It's the same reason why people stay at the blackjack table in the casino, even when they're up and they know they should leave. Why do they stay and end up losing more money? It's the same thing. You know, people have those kind of mental battles within themselves, right? Those mental struggles. So my way, my approach to this aspect is basically to take preventive measures. Don't put yourself in a position where you're going to be forced to maybe succumb to these urges, these detrimental urges that you may have. If you know that you're, if you have an addictive personality, then you should probably take, take a step back, you know, and kind of look at it and be like, okay, what can I do to even prevent myself from putting myself in this situation where my addictive personality might take over and cause me to do things that will result in me losing money, right? And obviously this applies to out every other facet of life, but for the sake of this discussion, we're talking about trading. So having identified that there are periods of time where there are, there's a better edge than another, we should probably objectively look at it and be like, okay, take these preventive measures during this, during these hours, I know that I'm probably going to lose. So I'm probably going to go out and, you know, make myself a sandwich. I'm going to go out there and go work out. I'm going to go for a jog or go take my trader nap. You know, these things will allow you to not put yourself in that situation to begin with and therefore probably averting disaster. Absolutely. I mean, there's no point playing when the odds are not in your favor. Yep. Max, are there any final words you'd like to leave with us? Is there anything you'd like to add to anything we've discussed this far? Yeah, all yours. Yeah, so I wanted to talk about my uh, brand new website, manasmoney.com. Uh, a lot of people have been asking me for content, and I used to have a lot of content that was kind of scattered around on YouTube, on my blog. And I wanted to make this website. I first had this idea late last year, and I want to consolidate all of my content all into one website. So that way everyone can has like a hub to kind of go to, and then they can check out my YouTube videos. And then within a couple of clicks away, they can check out my blog posts. So, you know, I'm a firm believer in giving back to the community that's given so much to me. Trading has been pretty much my life for the past six years. And I, I'm very, very thankful. And, you know, I'm, I'm somebody that comes from very humble beginnings. And I believe that, you know, giving back to the community is a very, very gracious way to kind of say thank you to, you know, how what trading has done for me. And I will continue to develop new content and, you know, be on the lookout for more and more videos, more and more blog posts. Uh, thank you, for everyone in the trading community, for all the support. Uh, definitely, you guys, you know, give me that drive to just keep going. And you know, I'm going to give back to you guys in the form of making more and more free content via my website, madasmoney.com. Check it out. Cool, man. And just for anyone who didn't catch that, do you just want to spill that out? How mad as money is spelled? Yes, mad as money is M A D A Z money. M-O-N-E-Y.com. Okay, cool. Obviously, there'll be a link to that in the show notes. And Max, you're also pretty active on Twitter. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, 
Yeah, so it's M-A-D-A-Z-N and then footballer, F-O-O-T-B-A-L-L-R without the E. It's character, character limitation there. They didn't let me put the E in there. All right, okay. <laughs> and I've got to ask you, man, where does Madaz come from? It actually comes from that name and uh, that Twitter name. And uh, somebody in one of the chat rooms that I first started with trading uh, a couple of years ago just started shortening it to Madaz. And I was like, oh, that sounds kind of cool. So I just kind of just stuck. Excellent. Well, Max, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot, Aaron. You know, I've, I want to say I've actually never been interviewed before. So this was actually a pretty cool experience. I really appreciate you bringing me on. No trouble whatsoever. Pleasure is all mine. Thank you, dude. All right. Take care, Aaron. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders.